And even then, it's probably still a summary of all that was said. And it's an incredible conversation that actually turns a whole town upside down. So to look at this today, we're going to look at, one, the background, uh, two, the deep need for change, and three, the transforming, mobilizing grace of Jesus. So the background, our deep need, and Jesus' grace. So the background is really important for us because this is a surprising conversation. Uh, the disciples are surprised when they come back. The woman is surprised. Um, verse 27, I read this chapter with a bunch of non-Christian blokes at college one time, and this was the verse where I lost them. Uh, verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. And so they cue sort of the giggles of them imagining sort of nervous Jesus talking with a woman by the well. Uh, but that's not what's going on here. That's not why it's a surprising conversation. Uh, we get more of the, the indication in verse 9. When Jesus asked for a drink, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John puts in, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So a few things that we want to look at in the context. First, the Samaritans, who are they? Well, they're the people who live in Samaria, uh, but the Samaritans were of mixed heritage. They were part Israelite and they were part foreigner, sort of the half-bloods. Uh, in the Old Testament, after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, a bunch of other people were moved in. Uh, 2 Kings 17.24 says, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthar, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. The verses after that actually describe that the king of Assyria sent an Israelite priest to teach the people there the ways of the Lord. Uh, but they sort of mixed that religion uh, with the surrounding nation's religion. So that in verse 33 of that chapter it says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So this led to a significant amount of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Due to that mixed descent and despite sort of claiming to worship God, Jews did not consider Samaritans to be true Israelites, and so they didn't accept them as part of the Jewish community. So there was this significant division, and it came to be that Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem at the temple. So when Jesus speaks to this woman of Samaria, she is surprised because, as we noted, they don't associate between Jews and Samaritans. Secondly, the setting, sort of physically where they are, uh, Jacob's well, it's at the foot of Mount Gerizim. We get a picture of that when the woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Unlike the Gentile nations, the Samaritans have their history tied to that of Israel, tied to the redemptive story. So Jacob, Jacob's well, is the Old Testament figure who was renamed Israel. Now, his descendants were the chosen nation, the Israelites, who grew you know, in great numbers in Egypt, were enslaved by Pharaoh, rescued by God through Moses, the plagues, the Red Sea. So the Samaritans have this sense of history. And as we see, even the Samaritan woman had some expectation of a coming Messiah. She said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Finally, the woman from Samaria now, the woman's past that Jesus reveals has led many commentators to suggest 
that she was probably socially on the outer, perhaps well known in the community for her indiscretion. The other evidence that points to that perhaps is that she's there collecting water in the sixth hour, which is midday, rather than the cool of the day, uh, perhaps to avoid the crowds. We don't get given the reason that she has had five husbands. Maybe she's widowed, uh, but being one, being with one now who is not her husband uh, implies a level uh, perhaps of disrepute or questionable moral standing. So this is the background and the stage for this encounter. Jesus is journeying away actually from the Jewish Pharisees who are jealous of his following and he's entered into really what is the heartland of Samaria at Jacob's well, a special site at the foot of Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship. And while the disciples go to buy food, a weary Jesus sits by a well. A woman comes, perhaps socially outcast, to draw water and Jesus asks her for a drink. We can start to see that there's a little bit more to this conversation. Jesus is crossing racial, cultural, religious, social divides to encounter this woman. She's surprised. Later, the disciples are surprised. Jesus, I don't think, is surprised. He knows that redemptive history has been building towards his coming, his ministry. He knows a time is coming when all are going to worship the Father through him, through faith in him. No longer will it be tied to heritage or families or nations or temples or cities. And it seems clear that the Father has been preparing this woman over time for this encounter. She's awaiting the Messiah. She has a deep need that living water uh, is going to quench. She needs change. What is her deep need for change? So number two, deep need for change. What leads us to change? What leads you to change, I wonder? What would make you change uh, your diet or your exercise habits or uh, your hometown even? I have a friend in New Zealand uh, who started experiencing sort of intense and debilitating migraines. He's changed his diet, he's changed his exercise habits, his screen time, he even moved houses uh, so there'd be less driving. The need there really drove the change. And I think until we see our need, we do not want or need, feel the need to change. But I think as we long to be changed, God graciously reveals our need, and he does that here uh, to this woman. So let's step through the conversation now and see where Jesus reveals this woman's need for change. So we'll start in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So we've mentioned this divide uh, that Jesus is crossing to talk to her. Uh, but now we sort of enter this conversation where she's sort of caught on the, the physical surface level. It's a conversation about water, but she's sort of on this level, and Jesus is really talking about something deeper. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she's still talking about physical water. But there's also a sense that maybe she's a bit sceptical of this Jewish man, and she sort of draws attention to some of the Samaritan history 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. Again, Jesus is talking about the gift of the Spirit, the gift of salvation and eternal life that he can bring that quenches a deep need, a deep thirst. The woman at this stage still isn't quite getting it. Her interest in the living water is mostly that she wouldn't have to keep coming back uh, doing this chore. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. As we said, we don't know all the background here, but Jesus speaks plainly about her past and present relationships after the woman sort of gave the truth but not the whole truth. There may be part distraction and part genuine question, she says to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus delivers here what is probably a paradigm-shifting, mind-blowing concept to Samaritans and to Jews. That the center of worship is not going to be a place, a temple. It's not about a race of people. It's that any person would come and worship the Father in spirit and truth. Then we kind of get to this place where maybe we start to see uh, the transformation that's going to happen in this woman. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is an incredible conversation. This woman has come in the heat of the day to draw water and carry it back to her home. Yet she meets a man who simply asks for a drink and her whole life will not be the same from this time forth. When she encounters Jesus, she's brought face to face with her need for change, which is also our need for change. A deep thirst that goes beyond the physical or surface level. A need for life that is eternal, that can go beyond death. And she comes face to face with her past, with her sin face to face with her need to be in right relationship with God, to worship him with freedom. We all have those same needs. I wonder how you experience that need, that thirst. How has she changed now? How is it, what is it that changes her? It's Jesus transforming and mobilizing grace. Picking back up in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, 
Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. I think we could say here that the woman's, if we're using our words, the woman's transformation is evidenced by her mobilization. She's moved to action by her encounter with Jesus. Drop everything uh, has become a frequent part of sales advertising recently. The idea that the sale is so, sh- so good you should reprioritize whatever you're doing right now and go buy whatever that thing might be. I'm not sure I've done that for a sale, uh, but I've done that, and I'm sure you have too. What's caused you to stop what you're doing uh, and drop everything? Maybe it was an emergency. Maybe it was your wife going into labor, suddenly remembering the kids are waiting at school, or the stove is on, or whatever else might be, that you drop everything and suddenly your priorities change. Well, I think a simple phrase here in verse 28 tells us that this woman's day, her priorities, her life, have changed. It says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town. This jar would have been a large vessel designed to carry a significant amount of water. Not only does she not complete her task of filling it and taking it back, but she doesn't even take it with her, whether empty or full. Her task has changed. Her priority has changed. This wasn't an interesting conversation that she was going to ponder through the rest of the day. Her encounter with Jesus has altered her priorities. She goes and brings people to Jesus. Look at him. Hear what he has to say. See who he is. After starting off seeming quite skeptical about Jesus, this Jewish man who is engaged her in conversation, returning a couple of times to the divide between Jews and Samaritans, she leaves the conversation saying, come and see, this man could be the Christ. What really struck me in this conversation, with all the ground that they covered, is the way that her testimony is summarized. In verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And later the the Samaritans in the town Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She doesn't say, come see a man who offered me living water or who told me that true worship won't be centralized at the temple with the Jews anymore. No, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. I think there's some element of her being impressed by his supernatural ability. But she's also saying, come see a man who knew all my sin Come see a man who told me the number of husbands I've had, the one who knows all my past partners, my past indiscretions. Come see a man who knows me, who sees through me. So we have to consider this. What must her experience of Jesus have been in that conversation for her to respond now the way that she does? She did not run away from this man who knew her deeply, who saw her past and mistakes and sin. She did not hide away in shame. Incredibly, she actually went, and that was the evidence she gave that Jesus just might in fact be the Christ. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. She also must have experienced his acceptance, his grace. The same man who knew all her sin was the same one who offered her living water, eternal life, who tells her, sort of of all people plainly, I who speak to you am he, I am the Christ. So few times do we see Jesus say this so directly. She's fully known and yet accepted. Surely she must not have experienced condemnation in that situation, but grace. 
And perhaps in time she came to see this man hanging from a cross, dying for the sins of all who would trust in him and opening that way to be at peace with God, to worship the Father, to receive the spirit that wells to eternal life. We often speak of knowing Jesus or of coming to know Jesus, yet this woman's testimony is that Jesus knew her. And it's equally true that Jesus knows you and he knows me. He knows us at our worst. He sees our ugliest sin. He knows our past mistakes. Yet it is the heart of Christ to be drawn in. He sees the need and he comes with grace. He comes with wells of living water for the thirsty. Grace, love, acceptance, forgiveness, rest for the weary. Jesus knows us, and if we knew him, we would be surprised. We would marvel that he would encounter us, that he would speak to us, that he would cross over the divide, that a holy God would come to us, needy sinners. We would marvel, we would be surprised that he would die for us, that we could be with him. And if we knew him, we would ask him for the living water. If we encountered his grace, we would be transformed. Well, how about us? Have you encountered that grace of Jesus and been transformed? This Jesus who left his throne above to die in our place. This Jesus who rose again and goes before us to prepare a place for us to be with him forever. He knows you and he comes with grace, love and forgiveness. He's the only one who can quench our deep thirst. We must come to him daily to experience and know that grace, to not forget. Amazingly in this story, it's not just this woman who's affected. A whole town. And the simplicity of her message and her mobilization, uh, her action, are really encouraging to me. She just goes and says, come and see. Come and see Jesus. Just meet him. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. That would have been an incredible two days. And let's not forget just again how cross-cultural, countercultural, weird the disciples probably didn't want to go. We're in the heartland of Samaria where Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with each other. Jesus goes and stays with them for two days and teaches them. And many believe in him. This woman's transformation and mobilization, her encounter with Jesus that moved her to action, meant that many more people were transformed. Isn't that what we long for as well? We can't really see sometimes in our own weakness and challenges how God would use us, but we long that he'd change us and use us so that others would come and see Jesus for themselves. And I think the disciples probably learned a lot of important lessons in this situation too. And Jesus kind of addresses them directly and We'll finish by taking a couple of the things from what Jesus said to them. So in verse 31, Meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, we're sort of on those two levels again, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus' deepest desire, his priority was to do the work of the Father to accomplish it. He was willing to step beyond the cultural divides, but he also was willing to forego his own desires. The disciples insist he must be hungry. We're not even sure if he got the drink. He probably did. We're not sure if he got the drink that he asked for, but he feels fed. He's energized and sustained by doing God's will. And I think in some ways we can be encouraged to step into God's will without being primarily or overly concerned about our own needs, sort of looking out for number one, making sure our desires are met before we would serve someone else. Someone said recently, our deepest desire is not always our strongest desire, meaning the things that we often feel most strongly about in the moment aren't necessarily our deepest desire. And it's going to take some wisdom and some self-control, uh, but we want to act out of our deepest desire to do God's will, uh, to serve others. Jesus goes on, he says, Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I think a part of this is that the disciples are probably thinking, all right, let's move on from Samaria now. Uh, but Jesus is right at this point, the Samaritans are coming out of the town. And so he might even physically be saying, look, the fields are white for the harvest. But also, I think on a grand scale, God has prepared this moment, this hour in redemptive history, has paved the way for Jesus to come. This is why he's here, to bring the good news of the kingdom to the Samaritans, to the Jews, to the Gentiles. Could this be the Messiah? Well, yes. The whole Old Testament, the history of the patriarchs of Jacob and Israel, whose well they sip aside, the prophets and the king, has all led to Jesus' arrival. And the disciples now, they don't get it, but they're in a place where they're going to share in the fruit that's going to come from that. Many have labored and they're entering into that labor. They're reaping the fruit in this age. And I think we can see too that God does this on the level of people's lives as well, that he's preparing them and working in them. These Samaritans are coming to answer this question, could this be the Christ? And I think as we walk in love, as we're serving others, as we're seeking to share with others, we can be encouraged that our labours are not in vain. Uh, Christian, Kristen Aldridge is a good friend of mine who works in the uni ministry in Christchurch in New Zealand. And I would say that a few months ago, she described ministry as maybe the hardest it had ever been. Nobody was coming out of their rooms. Everyone she met sort of didn't want to meet her again or wouldn't respond to her messages. It was just hard. Now, I would say that she would describe the current opportunities and connections maybe as the most positive she's ever had in her time there. She even had a student come up to her in the past weeks and ask her, how can I have my sins forgiven? Now, I'm not saying that all those types of things will happen to us, but I'm encouraged that they can. It tells me that God is at work in history 
but also in the lives of the people around us, beyond what we can see sometimes. He was at work in the Samaritan woman, and I think in this whole village that they would come, that so many of them would trust in him. The Spirit works beyond what we can see. And God invites us to be part of this sowing, this reaping, and this rejoicing uh, as we labor for him. So to wrap all that up, this was an amazing conversation. Uh, There's so many things we can take from it as Jesus entered over this cultural, religious, racial divide and shared so generously with this woman and with this town. This woman came to see her deep need, her deep thirst that only Jesus could meet. And even in the midst of having her deep need exposed, she found grace. And we too can find that in Christ in a way that would transform us and would mobilize us and move us to serve and to love and to share with those around us. So let's pray. God, we come uh, to you because we need you. Uh, We're so thankful for uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that uh, the promises that he made even in this conversation, uh, he went on as in his death and resurrection, his ascension, that we can now, uh, so many years after this conversation, uh, receive too uh, the promises of eternal life, the promise of your spirit as we would trust in Jesus. Um, God, even as earlier in the service we confessed uh, our sin, uh, we know that as we do that, uh, you don't respond in condemnation, uh, but you respond uh, as we would trust in Jesus uh, with grace and forgiveness. Uh, You respond Uh, because of what he has done in a way uh, that leads to our acceptance, that we can be fully honest, fully known, uh, yet fully loved and accepted as well. God, that grace is amazing. It's amazing that you would cross the divide uh, to come to us, and we pray that we would be continually transformed uh, by our relationship with you, and that you would use us, God. Help us to to boldly um, and gently and lovingly call others to come and see uh, to come and see this Jesus that has changed our lives, um, that you, your word, God, would change them um, just as you have changed us. Uh, we pray this.